Welcome. I'm Anne-Marie Ingtav Larsen. And I'm James Bray. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Andrew Maynard runs a risk innovation lab at Arizona State University. He's literally paid to think about big risks to society. So, of all the risks he has to fret about, what really furrows his brow? Goodness me. Such a difficult question because I I touch on so many different areas of technology innovation and each has got their own different flavour of risks. This may sound sort of slightly strange maybe not um, some of the, one of the things that i really do worry about is is social disparity and, and social justice and i say that because with most of the technologies and the convergence between the technologies we're looking at at the moment um, people who are rich smart um, and mainly in the middle classes have got the ability to actually uh, roll with the punches and adapt to these technologies and take advantage of what they have to offer. It's those communities that lie outside those domains that are more likely to suffer. Um, And that's where I think we need to put a lot of attention. So we're looking at at poor communities, disenfranchised communities, communities that just don't have that ability to both have a say in the process of where technology innovation goes or to adapt to the potential downsides of those innovations. He is far from the only one. Talk to people who are thinking about the fourth industrial revolution about what could really go wrong, and it won't be long before technological unemployment comes up. This issue is so big, it recently made it onto an episode of South Park. Estimates of the number of jobs that could be taken by machines over the next 20 years vary wildly, from big to enormous. If history is anything to go by, that will be a problem. Working people will respond, people who are are buffeted and injured will respond to try and protect themselves and to fend off insults to their living standards and mode of, of living. Jane Humphreys is an economic historian at the University of Oxford and has written extensively about the first Industrial Revolution. You get workers described in very patronising terms as Luddites. It's a phrase we now use to anybody who foolishly and short-sightedly opposes the introduction of technology because the Luddites, of course, were into trying to stop the introduction of of machinery into the textile sector in late 18th century. Yeah, their livelihoods were being taken away and they were that's the way they responded. They saw technology as the enemy. And I think people whose lives are being transformed, whose skills and jobs are being taken away, will respond that way unless the introduction of the new technology is managed and managed through the provision of of new training and um, alternative employment, um, which we often talk about. Many of the people who suffer in the first industrial revolution, of course, become the reformers, um, the working class reformers who try and use... I mean, in Britain, we don't have a revolution, but we have a wave of... um, reform-seeking, working-class originating movement. I think that people aren't just victims. They will react and they will organise. As every physics student knows, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. 
as those who find themselves on the losing side of technological unemployment fight back. So the interests of capital and governments that often protect them will dig in. At least if history is a guide. You know, the top puddle martyrs are for try, trying to organise trade unions in, in farm labour and, you know, shipped off to their, their um, <laughs> transported, you know, for God knows how long. And um, many, uh, some of the Luddites are executed. I mean, it's, uh, and we get the bloody code, which is not unrelated to the state's anxiety about violent social reaction to these kinds of economic changes, as well as to the shocks that are emanating from um, the French wars and um, changes in the agricultural sector. And those changes in the agricultural sector, of course, are not unrelated to, to industrial change too. There's some fighting back within Parliament. The silk manufacturers, for instance, resist any attempts to limit children's work on the grounds that, very familiar kinds of arguments, on the grounds that, well, children work in Italy in the silk industry. So unless we use children, you know, it's, we're not going to be able to compete. So it's not, this is often a bitter fight. A bitter fight and forced transportation. At the Forum, we'd like to think that 200 years on, we can hope for something better than that. We, after all, have the lessons of history to guide us. It's not beyond our capacity to anticipate who will be injured and what will be the forms of injury and to try and anticipate that so that we can build a consensus around technological change and how it's introduced so that we can actually optimise it. But I think it should be obvious from what I've said that we can't do this if we only think of private costs and private benefits. Because the private costs and private benefits which ran the first industrial revolution, you know, which led those early factory masters to want to run the machinery as long as possible, really Engels' pause is a product of the fact that nobody was paying attention to the social costs of the industrial revolution and how, in fact, there might be ways of mitigating those social costs and improving the benefits for working people. Engels' pause refers to the long period of stagnation of real wages endured by the working class even as the profit rate rocketed in the early decades of the first industrial revolution in the UK. The rich were getting really rich, new technologies were transforming industries and pumping up the GDP, but somehow those at the bottom weren't getting much of a slice of the new wealth. And in case this all sounds like a galaxy far, far away and not relevant to your wealthy 21st century economy. Well, let me paint you a picture first of the current workforce and the global economy. There's around 3 billion people. Around 60% of those only are in some form of formal employment. They have a contract uh, of employment. And more than half of those people are in insecure, low-paid, often unsafe work. Our global model of trade is now based on supply chains that increasingly uh, include some of the 40% who are working but are in the informal economy, sector of desperation where there's no rights, no minimum wages, no rule of law and certainly no social protection. Then, of course, uh, we also see included in our current global workforce through those supply chains even workers who are trapped in modern slavery, who are in forced labour. And some 89 million workers 
over the last five years have experienced periods of uh, forced labour or modern slavery. We are actually already seeing a fractured world of work where not just socially is that becoming a problem with social tensions that are extraordinary, but, uh, and of course, historic levels of unemployment, but it's also becoming an economic risk. Sharon Borrow is the General Secretary of the world's largest federation of trade unions. In a conversation that often feels dominated by the voices of technologists, entrepreneurs and capitalists, here is a powerful voice for the interest of labor. She knows that those whose livelihoods are threatened in the foyer, they will fight back for basic standards of living because she will be leading the fight. We can change the nature of work. People don't have to work as long. They can share work, but you have to have the fundamentals of freedom of association, the right to organise, to have a collective voice, to be guaranteed social protection, including those essential public services of care, a pension, a dignified pension, unemployment support if we're going to see just transitions uh, from technology or indeed climate change. And of course, uh, the, uh, you know, the rule of law that allows you to take um, complaints against oppression. Even the G20 this year agreed with us that the supply chain model is not any longer fit for purpose. They said that violations of labour rights cannot be part of the competition. Now, if we can build a fair competition floor for a global economy, if we can also ensure that minimum living wages, wages on which people can live with dignity, evidence-based, are absolutely not part of the competition, and then we can bargain collectively, of course, for a share of the productivity dividends and for the skills that we contribute, then we'll get back to an environment where our societies are more equal. So as technologies continue to depress the value of human labour, is confrontation inevitable? As ever, much depends on who you ask. The Dr Pangloss approach to this issue is essentially to ignore it. For this guy, it's not a real problem because the technologies are going to create new industries with more jobs, or the machines aren't in fact going to replace workers, but merely facilitate them or complement them. Which sounds pretty sweet. Well, almost too good to be true, in fact. What does Stuart Russell, a computer scientist with a pretty solid understanding of what machines will be able to do, make of it? I don't find convincing the arguments that say that humans are not going to be replaced by robots. The robots will just work with people because, of course, in most areas, there's a limited demand. There's a limited number of cars that need to be produced. If you can produce those cars with half as many people and some robots uh, and make more money or make the cars cheaper, then that's what you'll do. And that's what has been happening. You know, U.S. manufacturing output has dramatically increased in the last two decades, but employment has dramatically decreased uh, in that sector. So it is happening and it will continue to happen more and more, as, particularly as AI systems move into white-collar work. When people say, oh, but this leaves the humans to handle the more complex cases, well, yes, but most cases are simple, and that's, that was most of the work that people were doing. So I, I, I find myself agreeing with, with many Nobel Prize-winning economists that this is a very serious problem that we need to address. And, and the answers that governments are proposing 
such as, um, oh, we'll just retrain everyone to be a data scientist or a robot engineer, uh, don't make any sense because there's no possibility that the world needs a billion data scientists and robot engineers. And in fact, many data scientist jobs are going to be automated as well. We have to think about an economic future that's viable, even though machines are doing most of the, what we currently think of as work. Another suggestion from the optimistic camp in this debate is that new business models and platforms will emerge with new forms of work. As we endlessly invent new needs, the gig economy will provide work for us all. Well, I just think that's uh, absolutely without any moral compass. People who say, you know, everybody can be part of the gig economy, you can choose. What they're talking about is Uberization of our economy. And frankly, platform businesses are informal businesses. They're not licensed to operate in the sense that they don't often pay tax where they earn it. They take no responsibility for the uh, people they employ or who make their profits. So effectively uh, are employed by them, at least uh, the workers are dependent on that work. And the marketplace, some of them call themselves, I find that pretty laughable, but those individuals or groups of individuals who we would normally call a company are absolutely dependent on those workers. And of course they make no contribution to social protection, to secure pensions, in too many cases, and there are many platform businesses. Our position around those sorts of, uh, of developments are that every business has to have a social licence to operate. If you have a fair competition floor, if we really are building societies that we want for our children and grandchildren, we certainly don't want economies that are based on people getting an hour here and an hour there and uh, indeed not being able to collectively bargain for or have a fair contract price or a minimum wage in our terms um, on which you can live with dignity negotiated for them. So there is, there's a lot of questions that I think go to the heart of what kind of society we want. I mean, come on, let's say work is work, whether I work for you directly, whether I work for an agency who employs me to work for you, or whether I work for a number of people with contracts that I've uh, undertaken across the internet, I still have fundamental rights. And uh, so do all workers, and that's what we'll fight for. One person who you might expect to have devoted more thought to this subject than most is Stefan Kazriel. He's the CEO of the world's largest freelance network, Upwork. Unsurprisingly, he's a fan of a model where people work much more flexibly on a project basis, kind of like freelancers. You know, there's four scenarios we're studying within the, the farm right now. There's the doom and gloom scenario, which is high technology adoption, low reskilling. That's the mass unemployment, you know, uh, universal basic income scenario. It seems relatively unlikely and relatively easy to avoid, right? Then there's a incredibly optimistic scenario, which is everything is brilliant. Everybody has full employment, everybody has meaning in their life, and everybody makes a decent uh, amount of money. That is kind of the nostalgia, uh, nostalgic version of what happened in the you know, 50s and the 60s, the good jobs where everybody was relatively well off. And that, while extremely desirable, also seems extremely unlikely. Nobody really thinks that this is going to happen. So that leaves two scenarios. One, which is frankly the one we're in today, which is a you know, increasingly polarized society where essentially people with middle skills lose their jobs and then there's two options for them. Either they manage to get retrained and they go compete for the high-skill jobs and they do very well 
or they don't get retrained and they end up competing for the low-skill jobs, in which case you have not enough people with high skills, right? And so people who have those high skills are highly in demand and they do extremely well. Too many people with low skills and that puts a you know, downward pressure on wages and that is exactly what we're seeing today, right? The answer to that problem though is very clear. You need to retrain the middle-skilled people to take the high-skilled jobs, right? And that's the fourth scenario, which uh, is not necessarily extremely likely, but it seems a fairly good prom compromise of desirability. And it's something that seems easier to achieve than the, you know, perfect paradise, uh, you know, scenarios of the 50s and the 60s. And that's a scenario where technology evolves, but education evolves at the same speed. And that's the scenario where we talk about the rise of freelancing, right? I mean, essentially, people are incredibly specialized because the fourth industrial revolution is about specialization. And because they are specialized, they can attract, uh, you know, significant uh, earnings, but companies cannot afford to pay them full-time as employees. And as a result, through platforms, through, you know, other types of new uh, mechanisms, supply meets demand in a way that is efficient and everybody's better off than through any of the three, three other scenarios. So that's what the world looks like in 15 years. Lots and lots of freelancers in, you know, lower dense areas of the world who actually get a significantly higher income than what they would get today, while at the same time companies have reorganized to work with a mix of full-time employees that may be on site and freelancers that might be more remote. In some senses, this vision of the future is like a reversal of the changes of the first industrial revolution. Then we saw people give up their decentralized, unstable employments, kind of gig economy of crafts and agriculture, to flock to the cities and adopt a centralized, mechanized new style of work in the factories. There they could go and sell their labor more consistently, but they were required to be physically present. In the fourth industrial revolution, increasingly, that won't be necessary. Something that economists have been predicted for 60 years now, what people call the paradox of location. You know, when jobs became knowledge jobs, economists started predicting that we would revert to the type of population density we had prior to the first industrial revolution. Why on earth would you want to live in London or New York? I mean, some people do, but why would you generally want to live in a very expensive city where you could have a better quality of life, the same job, and living a couple hundred, you know, couple hundred kilometers away from there? And it hasn't happened. And the reason why it hasn't happened is not because people don't want it to. It's because companies have been resisting this for a long time. To, to the question of what can we do about it, one of the things that companies should do, instead of saying, well, hopefully governments will fix it or somebody else will take care of it, companies can take the lead and allow people to delocate. You know, instead of trying to relocate everybody to London, which, by the way, not only destroys a job in the place where that person was in the first place, but actually destroys other jobs. Right? Instead, you delocate people, you tell people, like, go back to where you came from if that's what you want. And then when you do that, you have what economists call the multiplier effect, which is if you have a highly paid person in a low-income uh, area, they tend to create additional wealth through their local area because, you know, quite simply, they need to go to the doctor and to the dentist. And so other people move back or uh, people that are already there are getting uh, access to better jobs. And that is a transformation that, you know, again, governments can help with. They can provide tax incentives to encourage people to work from home and governments to uh, encourage their people to relocate. 
but fundamentally it's it's a change in how companies organize their work right and i think when companies talk about digital transformation which is you know the big key term for them one of the th- angles they really should be thinking about is how do we reorganize work that sounds great so we can leave our overcrowded overpriced cities buy barn conversions in the countryside and work from home on high speed broadband but in order to sell your labor from home james you're going to need a sellable skill right So it's pretty clear that the general infrastructure for upskilling, retraining, lifelong learning, whatever you want to call it, is going to be a big theme of the 4IR, one way or another. The fundamental thing is um, you need to learn meta skills. There are two meta skills that people should learn. One is learnability, meaning the ability and the desire to continue learning throughout your life. You know, we are going to be in a world of lifelong learning. You can't hope that whatever you learn when you're 16 is what you're going to need when you're 30 or 50 or 60. The question is, who's funding it? What should people learn? Uh, are the different stakeholders even aware of what skills are in demand sufficiently ahead of time that people can get trained for it? But fundamentally, people need to be retrained every two to three years. And it can be done either purely privately, like employers should find a reason like maybe a tax based incentive or maybe uh, you know investor pressure but should find a reason for or just doing the right thing which some companies might do uh, but a reason to retrain their workforce rather than uh, using them until they're useless and then letting them go and having society uh, you know have to to deal with the problem essentially companies that don't train their workers create a negative externality on society which right now they're not paying for Right? So it can be done by the private sector. That's what Germany does, as an example. It can be done by the public sector, which is what France is trying to do right now with the personal training accounts. There's different models that we've studied you know, at the World Economic Forum. We have a fairly large series of, of benchmarks and resources that we make available to you know, different stakeholders. But fundamentally, the, the problem is clear and the solution is relatively clear too. And it's much more of an articulation of how does it get funded? How does it get executed? Right? How does it get executed? In particular, how do we know what skills we need to make provision for people to learn? Governments don't have a crystal ball, but today they do have the next best thing, data. Sue Duke, she is a senior director of public policy at LinkedIn, whose vast and rich data set is giving governments around the world a powerful new set of insights into this problem. We speak with governments all across the world who are facing this difficulty, which is we see this rapid change. We know new skills are going to be required. But by the time we realize the requirement is here, we're already way behind. And obviously, we need to make up the provision cycle. At LinkedIn, we have the ability to see that labor market emerging in real time. So our vision at LinkedIn is is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And one of the ways that we're doing that is creating what we call the economic graph. The economic graph is effectively a living digital map of the labor market. And by plotting on that map, people, their skills, as well as companies, jobs, and the skills that they require, that allows us to see what's happening in real time. So for example, when new skills emerge, not only do we see members 
putting that new skill on their profile, but we also see companies posting jobs that require that new skill. Now you imagine if you take a step back from that member's individual profile and from that company's job posting, we see that new skill on the supply side and on the demand side, and we start to see trends emerging, the requirements for new skills emerging, and the supply of new skills emerging. What we're trying to do is to empower governments with that information as quickly as we can and as effectively as we can so that they can take that information, use it to inform policy and ultimately get it into the hands of skills providers so that we can shorten that skills provision time cycle. Belgium is one of many countries that's taken an interest in LinkedIn's labour market data, feeding it straight into policy on skills and training. Alexander de Croo is the Belgian Deputy Prime Minister and an enthusiast for government and private activism on skills. We are doing that in Belgium in, in a few ways. Uh, one of them is to use what I would almost call a, a venture capital model. Uh, we created something called the Digital Belgium Skills Fund. It is a fund that invests in projects that are linking technology and skills. Last year, we invested in total 6 million in 41 different uh, projects. Uh, projects which are quite broad. Uh, some of them are the typical coding schools who are focusing on uh, inner city youth and, and uh, giving them a grant with which they can, during six months, uh, learn to be a basic uh, programmer up to uh, a project that teaches 16-year-olds on how to explain digital media to their grandparents. It's quite broad in the, the, the type of projects that we are in investing in. Second element is on continuous learning and reskilling. Actually, if you look in the past, any industrial revolution has always had the industry play a very important role in, in reskilling. If you look at the, the second industrial revolution, a lot of the schools that we have today in Belgium actually were created by, by the industry. We have textile schools, we had brewery schools actually being created by the industry because they knew they needed the skills. And at some point, the national education just took them, uh, took them over. I'm not saying we should use the same model today, but we can learn something from it. So uh, what I think we should, uh, we should do is uh, have a model where you give people during the course of their career a right to, to retraining. And I believe it should be the equivalent of two years during your career, that you have a right uh, to reskill, but that right to reskill should be put in some type of market mechanism where uh, entrepreneurs or companies um, say, okay, we are willing to invest in these types of trainings. Um, I am in a, in a need for a data analyst. Well, as, in, as a company, I'm willing to invest in these types of trainings, knowing that then I will get access to people with that kind of uh, skills. And as a, as a person, I will get the offer of trainings, but based on what the industry is, is looking for. Today, we see that uh, too often training and reskilling projects are quite broad and you get a lot of offer for uh, flower arrangement training and all this kind of stuff, but that is not really linked to what the industry is, uh, is looking for. Um, we are developing this type of model in, uh, in, in Belgium and I think you should expect in the next years to see something like that come, uh, come up. 
What's new here is quality data. In the fourth industrial revolution, data-rich private organizations partnering with governments to make better policy will hopefully become less remarkable. LinkedIn is already working with over 50 cities across the world, the EU and the World Bank. That gets a thumbs up from us and from Decrew. I think having access to data is, 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 is really important, not only in this domain. Um, if This is one of the surprises I had entering into politics, is that how much of, of policy is basically grounded in ideology and in gut feel and in the public debate and so on, and very often it's not grounded in, in, in data. And having access to new sources of data makes a huge difference. I mean, we were used to have aggregated data. We were used to have data from our national statistics office. That was quite nice. But if you see to the type of data you can have access now, this is almost conversational data. This is really detailed in what is happening on the market. And it is right now. We used to have data which was two, when it was two years old, we were quite happy. Now it is actually data of what is happening, uh, happening today. And, and if you look at this graph that LinkedIn has made for, for Brussels and, and for Belgium, it is interesting because it shows the diversity and it shows the granularity of what is happening in our city that most people actually don't, uh, don't, don't realize. Probably the most radical vision for the future of work is that basically there is none. Machines and AI between them automate so much of our lives that the challenge for humanity becomes filling our time. In this scenario, either through universal basic income or some other aspect of plenty, we transition to a society where people no longer need to earn income. Work, as we know it, slides into history. And if you think that sounds fanciful, well, you wouldn't be alone. Well, it's totally preposterous. I mean, there are periods when people will choose not to work and should be able to choose not to work. But there are periods when, um, you know, people out of work, through no choice of their own, find themselves in total despair. There is a lack of moral compass from people who simply argue in some romantic notion that we'll all be uh, poets or musicians and while our ways, days away in, uh, you know, glorious natural settings. I mean... Part of life's richness is the choice to do that. But in order to do it, you have to have some basic security. And that has come to date from the dignity of work and people having a purpose. The real question is, have, has the world given up on full employment? And if so, what do you replace the dignity of work with? The dignity of work has actually built a social fabric for the bulk of our population for generations. There is uh, also a need, of course, to uh, earn an income. So if you go beyond the purpose of work and the rituals of life, the roles that people can choose for themselves in uh, terms of uh, occupations or uh, professional careers, then there's the basic consumption frame of our economy. Is the um, total amount of jobs adequate for full employment or have we all given up on full employment? That's the big question. When you talk to the world's thought leaders on these subjects, it becomes apparent that this very much is the big question. Have we given up on full employment? And I have to say that in many cases, it sometimes feels like the answer is yes. For Sharon Burrow, 
That's defeatism that can't be indulged and overlooks the power the nation-state still has, we all have, to create meaningful jobs if we want to. I don't believe people have given up the notion of full employment, but governments at the moment are taking little or no responsibility for investment in jobs. And it's not that hard. Again, the research is in. You invest in infrastructure, particularly uh, enabling green infrastructure. Every dollar that goes into climate action will grow jobs. Or you invest in care. Infrastructure and care, so childcare, aged care, health, education, the kind of glue of our societies, these are the biggest medium-term multiplier in terms of jobs for investment that you can generate. Yet if you look at the amount of uh, tax evasion, just seen the Paradise Papers now, and uh, it's not... uh, We're not getting to be a more responsible society who actually lives by the rules and therefore contributes to the basic uh, social fabric, which is, in fact, those essential public services and social protection. So will the 4IR see a return to fashion of major government job creation schemes? Much will depend, ultimately, on what societies are willing to accept. If people are not prepared to abandon the notion of salaried work as a foundation for dignity, such schemes have to be a possibility. On the other hand, maybe we really will witness a cultural transformation of our expectations around what work is, what it means, and what it is for. Something to ponder in your commute, anyway. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Ingtoff Larsen. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode, where we will be talking to the digital Democrats who want to inject some of the spirit of Silicon Valley into the dusty halls of government buildings. And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon.